Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. James Altucher, and I am here with my good friend, and actually, it turns out he's my cousin. We've, we've genetically tested, and, and our DNA has shown that we're either third or fourth cousins. Isn't that right? A.J. Jacobs. Yes. Hello, cousin. Cousin Altucher. How are you? Good. And now, A.J., you've written, you know, four best-selling books. Uh, they're, they're, your books are actually in every single bookstore. Like if I'm in an airport and I'm looking for something to read in that two-minute period where you're not allowed to use the Kindle, I, your books are in every airport bookstore. How did you manage that? Well, all, you're very all of your nice. books I wish are I... there. It's not like one of your books are there. All of your books are there. Oh, you, that is you nice. and I wish I could take credit for are it. But... every airport bookstore. That is, uh, yeah, that's the sales. I will say the new laws that you cannot, now you can read your Kindle uh, during takeoff. So that's going to hurt the airport uh, book sales. So uh, I have mixed feelings because I always hate turning off my Kindle. But, uh, but now for airport bookstores. Well, I hope people still continue to buy your books, particularly after this interview, because we're going to go over every single one of your books and show how amazing they are. So are, are you ready for that? I am ready. Now, in, in one of your books, and by the way, we're going to get to the genetic testing by the end because I want to talk about the book you're working on. But first, I'm going to give people a feel of what A.J. Jacobs is all about, what you stand for and how you can improve their lives. So Great. in one of your books, uh, I think it's in the introdu introduction to my life as an experiment. You, you mentioned you have this uh, almost this fixation on bettering yourself, and you better yourself through actual experimentation. So some people say, well, I'm going to do a bunch of push-ups every day. You actually dive into these really intensive and weird and odd experiments to improve your life. And what, where do you think that fixation comes from? Well, I think I definitely do have OCD, but I sort of channel it. I try to channel it into something that's a little more positive. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fixated on trying to improve myself, as you say. So if I want to improve my health, I go and I test every single health piece of health advice there is and see what works and what doesn't. And, you know, it's, I go to the extreme but in the end, I, I discard the crazy stuff and hopefully keep the sane stuff. At least okay. that's the plan. And, and, and we're going we're gonna to kind of see how, how you do that. But uh, uh, I don't know if you ever saw that Larry David episode where he uses, he fakes having OCD in order to pick up girls. Have you ever used OCD to pick up women? <laughs> I haven't. That's a very interesting theory. You know, I uh, I once wrote an article on radical honesty, which is 
saying everything that's on your mind. It's this movement started by psychologists in Virginia. And I wrote an article on it for Esquire, and a lot of people told me that they started to use it as a, a way to pick up women because they would just go up to a woman in a bar and say, you know, I, I'm doing this thing called radical honesty. I find you very attractive. I'd like to go home and have sex with you. And 99% of the time they would, you know, get uh, slapped in the face or woman would walk away. But 1% of the time it worked. Well, I have been I think married. that's actually a very typical technique to avoid shyness. Like if you want to talk to somebody, the key is to talk to them in, within the first three seconds um, after you notice them, you know, whether you're a man or a woman. Right. I like it. Now, I, I read that article about the radical honesty, and I actually had some questions about it. It seems like, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of honesty. Like if you read my blog, it's all about honesty about myself. Like I expose myself. But it seems like with radical honesty, as you put it, it's you get rid of that filter between the brain and the mouth. So, for instance, if you like your wife and your wife's sister, you would just tell them, and that way you would have a more authentic relationship with both of them. Like, what do you think about that philosophy? I think it goes a little far. I think there are elements to it that are good. And I love, you know, I'm a huge fan of James Altucher, as you probably know. So I, I know that you're pro-transparency, and, and I love your advice to entrepreneurs. You know, tell everyone about your project. I, I agree with that. I used to be so paranoid about my projects. Now I just tell everyone. Because the chances that a friend will come and help you are much higher than the chances that, you're, someone's going to steal your idea. But anyway, so yeah, I think telling your wife that you want to sleep with her sister, maybe not the best idea. But I do, I am in favor of radical, positive honesty. Like, a lot of times we, we're, you know, like with my mentors, people who really helped me in the beginning, I'll often call them out of the blue and just thank them. And it's a little awkward because men are not supposed to express emotions like that. But it's really, I think, liberating for me, and I do think in the end they appreciate it. They might be freaked out in the in in the moment, but they, I think, appreciate it. So I'm all for positive, radical honesty. We don't tell the people who influenced us positively that uh, how important they are. I, I agree with that. In fact, I actually think it's a very useful practice to do to actually communicate with three to five people a day uh, telling them things you benefited from them. I think that actually strengthens your your personal network of, of contacts, connections, uh, and colleagues, and so on. Right. I agree. I agree and completely. I, I think with the negative radical honesty, it's almost like he's outsourcing his honesty to the other people. So like in the, in the example with the, the wife and the sister, it's like, he has relationship issues, so he's outsourcing those issues to the people he's being honest to. Right, exactly. It can be a crutch almost, uh, sort of. Uh, but I would say, yeah, used wise. What I like to call it is is uh, sustainable radical honesty. That's I what like I that. Try to I like that. You should yeah. write the book. <laughs> now, now, your first your first big book was the Know It All: uh, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World. Now, I know you succeeded at that and you became the smartest person in the world, but how, how did that one start off? You, you mentioned your, your dad started reading the Encyclopedia Britannica, but he only got to B. 
Yeah, he got to about around uh, Borneo, maybe Boomerang, somewhere in there. And I decided I was going to try to finish what he began and remove that black mark from our family history. And I love reading, uh, and I know that you do, too. That is one of my favorite things. I don't want people to flood you with emails, but your automatic email reply, you always have the books that you're reading. And I find it such a useful, wonderful, little uh, value-added uh uh, piece of information. Uh, I'm glad you like it. I was worried with the auto response it would come across as obnoxious. Not at all. It's great. I mean, listen, you know, if you had nothing on there and just said I'm too busy to talk to you, that's obnoxious. But you're giving us a little, uh, a little slice of information and advice. I love it. All right, good. I'm going to keep it. Yeah, please. Uh, so anyway, I love to read, so I decided I'm going to read, and I read for about eight hours a day, every day, for about a year and a half, and I, I learned the most, um, I mean, you know, some of it was incredibly dull, but a lot of it was so weird and interesting and fascinating, and I, uh, you know, it taught me a lot about life, and maybe too much, my wife started to fine me one dollar for every irrelevant fact I inserted into conversation, but, uh, you know, I'm just so enthusiastic about knowledge, I couldn't help it. But now, but now, let me ask you a question. Of those irrelevant facts, how many do you actually remember? Well, I think I do remember, uh, I would say, 1% of the encyclopedia. But i got to say, in my defense, it's a big book. So it's 44 million words. So 1% is a lot better off than I ever was. And, and it always, whatever is in, whatever I see, it sort of sparks a, uh, a thought in my brain. So... Like this one, I was just uh, pouring my son grape juice last night. Uh, I probably shouldn't give him grape juice because it's basically sugar. But, uh, but it reminded me of this great business lesson I learned in the encyclopedia about the importance of adapting and, and evolving or pivoting, as they say in business now. Because grape juice was originally Welch, Thomas Welch invented it, and he marketed it as communion wine, alcohol-free communion wine during uh, Prohibition, and no one bought it. So then his son pivoted and marketed it as like a little treat for kids, and that's when it took off. Wow, and you read that in the, in the Encyclopedia Britannica? Yeah, I did. I mean, it's got some... It's got some fascinating stuff and weird stuff, too. It's got some of the weirdest stuff. Like, it has a section on uh, the philosopher Rene Descartes, and it talked about how he had a fetish for cross-eyed women. You know, why, that, that, why is that in the encyclopedia? Well, it does. One thing I did learn is that if I really want to go down in history uh, and I want to be, you know, famous throughout all time, my, the best method, according to you, is, is that I get decapitated. That is certainly helpful. They have an obsession with the decapitated people and also uh, botanists. There were so many botanists in there. Uh, anyone who discovered uh, any kind of moss or, uh, you know, uh, angiosperm, they, they made the cut. So, so what, other, what other stuff did you learn that's kind of meta to this? So as opposed to just facts, what did right. you learn like about yourself while, while undergoing this? Well, there were many things. I, one thing is that it really made me more grateful to be alive now because we tend to romanticize the past and I see this all the time oh the good old days the good old days were horrible they were terrible they were they were smelly they were violent they were uh, uh, you know you died very easily the, the average age 
life expectancy was extremely low. Uh, so I, it made me realize, you know what, uh, we have a lot of problems, and technology is a mixed blessing. I'm not saying that it's all perfect, but it is so much better than it used to be. And uh, even something, I don't know if I should be talking about this on, on your uh, high-class radio show. but You can say like, anything here. Yeah? All right. Yeah. Well, going to the bathroom, just the history of reading about toilets and going to the bathroom and how thankful we should be for toilet paper. And, you know, because you used to, like, have to use a, a stick or a sponge on a stick. That's where the word, the phrase wrong end of the stick comes from. You have to, uh, you know, or a corn cob or, or gravel. It was just horrible. So thank God for modern plumbing and modern uh, bathroom uh, tissue. That's really, uh, that's really amazing. You learned that, that great stuff about the stick and the bathroom and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what did I take I, away. Did I tell you the invention I'm working on? Yeah, no, yeah, I want to hear the smart toilet. So basically, oh. you pee into a toilet, and then it does complete medical diagnostics on your urine. So you can oh, diagnose, absolutely. you know, with just that material, you could diagnose almost every cancer, almost every kind of uh, sexually transmitted disease, uh, hundreds of thousands of diseases. And I then, love it. you know, your, your toilet could right away start prescribing medicine to you, so you don't, <laughs> you don't have to go to a doctor. <laughs> Fantastic! You know, I uh, I am the best. think that toilet technology has to stop just because we're in the 21st century. It's true. It's true. It has been sort of stable for quite some time. Yeah, it used to be. It used to be like science fiction would come true, but now parodies come true. <laughs> <laughs> like science fiction's old news already. So, so let's move on to the next book, The Year of Living Biblically. You spent a whole year living as cl close as possible. To the Bible. So what, how did this come about? Was it just an idea for a book, or did you really want to live a biblical life? Well, this came about because I had no religion growing up. As I say in the book, I'm Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian. So, not very. No offense to the Olive Garden, by the way. There is uh, spaghetti there. What's that? They got spaghetti. <laughs> they got breadsticks. Uh, but they, uh, I wanted to, I like to learn from the inside out. I think that is an excellent way to learn, is by immersing yourself in it and living it. So I thought... Okay, let, let me just add, though. You're, yeah. You clearly look Jewish, and you're from New York. So you're like, you're practically an honorary accountant. So that, that's how <laughs> that's how Jewish you are. I, I don't totally buy that... that that you're not that you haven't lived a Jewish life, but but let's go ahead. All right. Well, I'm culturally Jewish, but I had I was one of those Jews who had you know, growing up I had the Christmas tree with the the Star of David on top, so it was uh, <laughs> it was that kind of Jew. And uh, I, but I I wanted to learn about the Bible. I knew nothing about it. What should I teach my kids? You know, to me, spirituality and religion was such a mystery. You know, why would people believe in this this fairy tale? So I decided. Um, to, to try it out, and I did. I, I followed every rule in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures, and there are hundreds of them. So the famous ones like Love Your Neighbor and Ten Commandments, but I also wanted to follow the uh, the less famous ones, like Don't Shave the Corners of Your Beard. And I didn't know where the corners were, so I just let the whole thing grow, and by the end I had this huge topiary on my chin. I, I You know, I looked like uh, Ted Kaczynski. I looked like a crazy person. I spent hours at airport security. Um, You're so kidding. A, People actually stopped you because of your beard? Absolutely, yeah. I went. I, I literally did spend like an uh, two hours in LL getting grilled. 
Oh my gosh! And LL no less. LL no less. The latest. You're trying I, to to live like a Hebrew, and the Hebrew airline stops you for security reasons. Exactly. The irony, as, as one great writer once said, the irony is so thick I could spread it on a sandwich, but if bread weren't so high in carbs. <laughs> <laughs> Do you recognize that? No, I don't. It sounds like maybe something Tim Ferriss would say, though. No, it was something James Altucher said. You're kidding. I must have stolen it from Tim Ferriss. No, you you came up. You're a great writer. I love your writing. Thank you very much. Well, well, I'll have to, I'll have to Google for that. But uh, why, why was that rule there for the beard? Like, I don't get, like, why that would make me more holy. Well, one theory is that it's, it's a reminder. It's a constant reminder, like a string on your finger, to uh, always be thinking of, the, the commandments and and of the uh, and and of other people and thinking of uh, you know other people's welfare. So there there were some crazy rules, but sometimes they actually made my life better. And I will say, you know, I after the year I stopped doing most of the crazy rules. Like I I I stopped stoning adulterers. I actually well, so let's did. talk about that for a second. How would you know someone was committing adultery, and then how? And stoning involve it doesn't stoning involve like burying them and then throwing a uh, having everybody throw a gigantic stone on top of them, killing them. Yes and no. I mean, there's no strict definition of stoning in the Bible. So I, to literally fulfill the letter of the law, I decided I should go with small stones, so I don't spend the rest of my life in jail. So I went with pebbles, and I. Uh, I, it was hard because, you know, people don't say I'm an adulterer, except I was in Central Park. This is how, just very quickly, how I was able to do it. Uh, and I was dressed in my robe and sandals, and I was really getting into the character. And this guy came up to me and said, why are you dressed so weird? And I explained, I'm trying to live by all the rules of the Bible, from the Ten Commandments to stoning adulterers. And he said, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And I said, well, yeah, that would be great. So... That's when I did it. I took out the stone, the pebbles, and, and that's how that happened. So, so you basically figured out a way to cheat God in that. <laughs> that was your year of living biblically. You figured out a set of rules you could abide by, and then another set of rules you would figure out how to, how to cheat, like, uh, like a crib sheet in a test or something. I don't like to think of it as cheating. I like to think of it as following it to the letter. Okay. Uh, but, but it certainly did teach you, yeah, you can be... Too literal. You cannot. We should never be too literal in any part of our lives. So a lot of people are, I think, too literal in their following of the Bible. And millions of people believe that homosexuality is a sin just because, you know, the Bible says in one uh, one part that man should not lie with another man like a woman. So it, it just, you know, it's important to look at things metaphorically and not too literally. But I will say. The the by that project overall made my life much better. And in what and, way? Well, just to give you one of many examples, the Bible talks a lot about gratitude, and it says to say these prayers of thanksgiving. And so I was I would say these I wouldn't call them prayers almost they were more like meditations. So when I would uh, press an elevator button, I would be thankful that the elevator came, and I'd get in the elevator and I'd be thankful it didn't plummet to the basement and break my collarbone. And I was doing this hundreds of times a day, and you start to realize there are hundreds of things that go right every day that we totally take for granted, and we focus on the three or four that go wrong. So, 
you know, it was a radical change in perspective in, in being able to focus on all the things that do go right. And that has made my life infinitely better. You know, that's really fascinating because it kind of goes along with one of your chapters in, in My Life as an Experiment where you talk about how you're going to avoid um, various cognitive biases that, that humans have, that the human brain has. And one huge bias is that we're much more attuned to the negative information in our lives and the positive information. So if you were a caveman and to your right was a lion and to your left was a fruit tree, you're going to notice the lion and ignore the fruit tree because you want to save your life. So so we get this negative, we notice the negative much more frequently. And so what you're saying is the Bible almost became like this textbook of how to uh, reverse that that bias. You're right. I love that. That's an excellent uh, connection because it is a huge bias, and I still fight against it every day. And you know, if I get if I write an article and I get you know a hundred nice comments and one horrible comment, what's the one uh, that I focus on? Is the one horrible comment? But uh, we've got to fight against that because it's just a terrible way to go through life, and uh, you know, really crippling. So yeah, the Bible definitely helped try to reverse that crazy tick in our mind. It, it is really horrible. Anybody doing any creative effort knows this, that just that, that one negative comment could destroy an entire creative career, just depending on how our brain can handle, how our psychology can handle the negativity. So, so it's very interesting that that's essentially what the Bible gave you was an ability to handle a creative life. Yeah, that's so true. And the other thing, the horrible thing about our memory is every time we remember something negative, it imprints further in our brain. So uh, so I have to actively try not to remember things. If I start to go down a negative road in my mind, I'm like, you know, I say, is this, is this what I really want to spend my brain on? Is this what I really want to imprint in my neurons? So, and, that, and that takes practice. That's almost like meditation where you kind of have to notice what you're thinking before you think too deeply into it. Oh yeah, I agree. I mean, for me, metacognition, thinking about thinking, is one of the keys to a happy life. You know, I'm, I'm always trying to say, think about what I'm thinking. It's interesting because so much of what you've been experimenting with is, uh, I'll call it this sort of outsourcing of, of thinking, outsourcing of thought. Like for instance, the year of living biblically, uh, you can out essentially outsource what your your actions and, and your opinions based on what uh, you can outsource it to the Bible. So if the Bible says don't kill someone, then that's how you decide not to kill somebody. You know, other than deciding internally that that's something you probably don't want to do. Right. Or, or in the know-it-all, uh, you're able to outsource your entire knowledge of facts to the Encyclopedia Britannica. And in 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 a, uh, radical honesty is another example where you can outsource decision-making to the simple thing of, well, am I being as honest as I possibly can or not? Uh, I love so that. That is such a good insight. And I think there is something to that. I think living by a system, and you do this in your books, you sort of give people, here are twenty, the 30 best rules for being an entrepreneur. You give them a system, and, uh, and it can be really helpful. Uh, I mean, I am a huge fan of, of freedom of choice, of course, but there's also... Uh, lots of studies that you probably know uh, about uh, 
that there's too if you have too much freedom of choice if the paradox of choice is a great book then you're not as happy so sort of narrowing your your options so so you're a little bit happier freedom yeah no I, I, i'm i'm a huge believer in that just because I, I, and and you you roughly refer to it again in in that same chapter in my life as an experiment where we have all these evolutionary biases the brain is basically a primitive tool just so that humans, which are kind of in the middle of the food chain, like we're not stronger than lions and, you know, we're, we're probably stronger than some birds, but we're, we're like in the middle of the food chain. So we developed this brain in order to move to the top of the food chain, but it's essentially just a tool and yet we let it rule our lives. I'd much rather think as little as possible so that I could be a fully developed human instead of a human controlled by my brain. <laughs> True. I, uh, overthinking, I think, is, uh, I think you've talked about this in your book. Overthinking is a dangerous thing. And, and you talk about it as well. Like, you, you again, you, you, out, you tried to, you did an experiment where you outsourced almost everything in your life, including arguments with your wife. You, like, outsourced to India. Oh, like, this was, yeah, it was one of the greatest months of my life. I, I mean, this was a long time ago. This was, like, ten years ago, and outsourcing had just begun. And I read about it, and uh, I thought it sounded great, and I was like, why don't I just apply it to my life? So I hired a team of people in Bangalore, India, to do everything for me. So they answered my emails and answered my phone, and as you say, they argued with my wife for me. And it was it was wonderful because, uh, you know, I just got to do what I loved, which was uh, read and, uh, and, and uh, think about things that were not, uh, trivial or minor. But there was just an article about a month ago in the New York Times that I thought was very interesting about how outsourcing your personal life actually makes a lot of economic sense because you are uh, able to think of, uh, of bigger picture ideas that might earn you a lot more money than the 15 bucks an hour that you're spending uh, having someone type in your yeah, you know, phone numbers to your database. So I am actually, I am a big fan. I am personally, the irony is, I'm not a great delegator, but I know how important it is, so I force myself to do it. So, so like, take me as an example. What, what should I be outsourcing in my life? Like, I tend to do a lot of my own crap all, all the time. What, what should I, what should I think about outsourcing to be more productive? Well, yeah, I mean, you've. Your life is great. I don't see why you need my advice, but you, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I try to outsource things like uh, uh, even online shopping, you know, it it seems like it doesn't take a lot of time, but uh, if, you, if you give someone a list of things you need uh, and they do it, it's just a liberating feeling. Uh, and uh, transcribing interviews, I've, I've learned to outsource that. You know, I used to sort of be embarrassed because a lot of times when you interview people, you sound like an idiot. But but listen, it is so worth it to pay that 15 bucks an hour to have someone uh, type up your notes because that saves you like three hours in your day. And think of how much you can accomplish in those three hours. Yeah, no, that's really true. I, I agree. Like right now, I have actually hired somebody to examine the ways I can outsource. So I've outsourced oh, great. figuring out how I can outsource. Outsourcing your outsourcing. I love yeah, it. Because I had no idea what to outsource. Like, I don't know what to do to change my habits. I'm also not a good delegator, so I didn't know what to do. So, so I basically outsourced 
the ability to figure out what I need to delegate. That is brilliant. That's what happens. I love it. Well, one of my favorite reactions to that book was, uh, I mean, that article, it ran in Esquire, and, and Guy said that he had lost his job to outsourcing, and he was uh, understandably very bitter. So he decided to outsource his job uh, search. So he hired someone in Bangalore, India, to find a job for him, and it worked. He found a job. That's great. What did they do? Like submit his resume everywhere? I guess so. I don't know. They scoured Monster.com or looked on, I don't even know, uh, but uh, but it was successful. Well, right now you have a column in, in Esquire where people ask you, it's like an advice column where people ask you questions and you essentially outsource it to your 100,000 Facebook fans. And how's that working out? Right. That is, it's one of my favorite projects that I'm working on. Uh, and it is, yeah, it's called The Huddled Masses, and I basically I crowdsource uh, advice. So someone will write in and say, you know, my, my girlfriend, her arms are, are too hairy, and I don't know how to tell her. And, uh, and then my, my Facebook friends will weigh in, they're so shallow. So that's one reaction. And, um, but then there are also other actual, you know, people who say, oh, well, give her... Uh, a gift certificate to a spa and have her uh, have the masseur outsource. They often say outsource the uh. difficult conversation to the woman in the uh, you know the the person giving the massage. But so it is wonder. I I think outsourcing is hugely helpful in some situations. Not in every situation. There are limits. But I am a big fan of the wisdom of crowns in some situations. So, so essentially, we live in a highly specialized society, and chances are, for any one topic, you're probably not the expert, and there probably is someone to outsource who is an expert expert in that subject. That's so true. Like, like for I instance, mean, the masseur in this uh, in this example. Yeah, I mean. Advice columnists are so funny to me because, dear, you know, like dear Abby, you once said in one of your your uh, books, "I'm no dear Abby," and I was like, "Thank God you're no dear Abby. You are much smarter. You've actually had experiences." Because what has she done? Nothing. Now, you know, no, no disrespect. I'm, uh, I'm sure she's a wonderful woman, but uh, but why does she have any expertise? Why should we listen to her authority? So that's why I think in cases like that outsourcing is so great like you know if you have a, a relationship question it's much better to get a hundred thousand people who've been through relationships to give you advice it, it's so true I remember um I, when I was a kid I, I actually did love dear Abby and I would read all her collected columns as, as they were collected as books you know reading her a lot of times uh, and that uh, you know you know they're just taking a stab in the dark they're just uh, they don't know any better. Uh, they don't. It's not like science where where they've studied, uh, you know, a particular topic and have become the expert. They just are spouting their opinion based on very little evidence. So and, that's uh, why I'm I'm a huge fan of. Uh, I, so I love it. You know, I say in the introduction of my advice column, like, don't listen to my advice. I have, uh, you know, what do I know? But here is the wisdom of a hundred thousand people. Well, it's interesting. I'll take this. I'll take the, uh, a Buddhist slant on this. So Buddha says, "Don't follow my advice um, because this only works for me." What I say. So try it for yourself and see if it works. So in a sense, he outsourced the entire creation of Buddhism. 
to his followers by simply saying, don't trust me, determine if it works for you, and then say the same thing to other people. And that's how Buddhism more or less spread. So it turns out to be an excellent marketing technique. <laughs> he was a great marketer. I, I love that idea. Because that's basically what I said when, when I tried uh, to be the healthiest person alive. So I tried, you know, uh, a thousand uh, different pieces of medical advice. And I said, these are the ones that work for me. These are the ones that make me feel better and give me more energy. Uh, so try them, and they might work for you as well. So let's, uh, so let's talk about that, because the body is one thing you can't really outsource. Like, you have to do the work yourself. But, but, you, did out, but you did outsource or look outwards to see what you should try to get healthier because obviously you're not the expert on you know the latest science on what makes people healthy I mean no no one really is the expert so you had to try many things what actually did work for you well one thing that worked is you know the whole trendy saying that sitting is the new smoking that when you sit down too much it's horrible for your for your metabolism and your heart and uh, you know, basically, if you're sitting for more than 20 minutes a day, you're you're gonna die of a heart attack within the next week. So it's an exaggeration, but it really is true. From the research, it seems to me we gotta move more. That's the way our bodies were built. And so I took this and I, I joined the treadmill desk movement that you've probably read about. So I got a treadmill yes. and I put my computer on top of it, and that's how I write and uh, and pretty much do everything, send emails. Uh, I'm on there for like six hours a day, and I love it. And And it's counterintuitive because it actually gives me more energy. I thought I would be tired from walking all day, but it's just the opposite. It makes me more energetic. Why? I'm not sure. I think it's just when I sit down, I start to feel lethargic. And when I'm now typing at my desk, you know, I can barely keep my forehead from uh, going into the keyboard. So, 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 did you find that your typing style changed when you switched from a regular desk to a treadmill desk? Like, did your thinking change? I think so. You know, it's it's hard to say because a lot of it is, uh, you know, the placebo effect, but. But yeah, I think that I became more assertive and uh, and you know decisive just from walking. And there are all those studies that I'm sure you've seen about. Uh, there was a great TED talk I forget who gave it about how your body, how you hold your body, has huge effects on your your confidence and your testosterone level. And if you have, if you're in the power position with the shoulders back and the chest out, then then you're really going to feel better and more confident. So I do, I buy into that. I think, you know, if you, uh, the way you move your body has a big effect on your brain. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, two people talk about about that exact thing. One of them is uh, Tony Robbins. I think in, in his first book, maybe it was Awaken the Giant Within, he says if you, if you stand up straight all the time with your back as straight as possible, you'll feel much more confident and optimistic and people will treat you better. And then the other writer who talks about this is a young man by the name of A.J. Jacobs in My <laughs> Life as an Experiment in the chapter on George Washington. So he said George Washington great. always... Uh, you know, he was a tall guy for, for 1776, and he always held his back straight. And then you tried it, and people started treating you better. Yeah, it was very weird. I mean, that, that yeah, that was a, a, an experiment where I tried to live like George Washington. And 
the guy was known for having the best posture of his day, and it was incredibly important to him. And so I thought I should try it, and it was weird. Uh, just like you said, first of all, it increased my own confidence, and I was more decisive with my kids. And you know, they started to. The weird thing was they started to listen to me more, and, and I felt that with with people I dealt with as well. They said, "Oh, well, this guy, he's got some authority." So it's a very strange thing with our uh, with our minds that we really place a lot of emphasis on on the way we hold our body. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to start trying this. I think I I think I probably slouch a little too much myself, so I'm gonna try it now. Now, this this health advice this is coming from the book Drop Dead Healthy. Give us the final word on paleo slash carbs versus other diets. What do you think? <laughs> well, I uh, again, it's what a lot of it is what works for you. Like uh, people who say that there's one diet that works for everyone, I think they're deluded. So I think. Uh, if if paleo is working for you, that's fine. Uh, for me, the diet I go with is more with the Michael Pollan diet. You know, his uh, he's got those famous six words: eat food, meaning whole foods, stuff that grows in the ground, uh, not too much, so don't overeat. It's very important to have portion control, and mostly plants. So I am a mostly plant guy. I do eat uh, eggs and. Uh, uh, and dairy, but I am mostly plants, and that works for me. But I, I honestly think that if if you're eating natural foods, that it doesn't matter all that much if you're focused on the protein or or on the fruits and vegetables. Uh, the key is to avoid processed foods and sugar, and everyone agrees on that. So, so you're a kind of. Um uh, if you go in the grocery store, go to the the aisles that are at the ends as opposed to the aisles in the middle. I am. I'm a big perimeter. Shop the perimeters, as they say. And you can do this in your home. This is actually a good little little heuristic that I use. Is eat from the fridge. Don't eat from your cabinet. The cabinet is where all of, and the cupboard is where all of the evil food lies. Because the the fridge is where the foods that uh, are natural and rot. You know, if a food rots, that kind of means it's good. So eat from the fridge, not from the processed foods in your cupboard, which are going to last until, you know, the, the the next millennium. And so so by the end of this year where you were, uh, you know, endeavoring to be more healthy, were, what were the, change, the noticeable changes? Did you lose weight? Were you, like, jacked? Were you... Taller. What was? What were the changes? <laughs> I did lose weight, and uh, and to me, the biggest change was almost not quantifiable. It was that my energy level went way up. I was so lethargic before, and I I do think a lot of it has to do with with moving more. Just huh. the you know we are not. Uh, it's not like we run out of energy if you if you walk around all day. You actually gain energy. And there's a great book, by the way called Spark by a Harvard psychologist who who talks about the the importance of exercise to your brain and that you know I always I was uh, of course a nerd growing up and so I always look down on athletes as you know dumb jocks but it's actually quite the opposite you know if you exercise a lot you you are doing good for your brain now 
if you act if you you know go to football practice for six hours instead of reading, then yes, that's going to be a problem. But if you can find a balance, then exercise is actually going to make you smarter. Well, it's interesting because there's there's I don't know if there's evidence to just to suggest this, but the, there's a theory that um, pre-agricultural revolution man, so when 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 humans were nomadic, were right. actually more intelligent than they are now because. They had to move constantly around. They had to right. constantly forage for food and be wary of animals and and so on. And they had to be they had to have in their brain complete knowledge of where all the food and enemies and plants were in let's say the one or two miles around them. So they kind of had to have they moved more and they had to have more information in their brain to and me, and memory to keep a track of it all. I like that. That's interesting. I yeah, it's that. interesting. Kind of goes along with that. Yeah. So so what. Let's talk about the the business of your books, and then I want to talk about your your most recent project. So, so you had a couple of books before, but it really the the breakout book was was the know it all. Uh, and then since then, um, two questions. One is, do you write every day? Like, are you do you wake up in the morning and you start writing? Well, I'll tell you, I don't necessarily write every day, but I try to generate ideas every day and. My inspiration for this is a, is a great writer named James Altucher who, uh, who talks about the importance of your brain as a muscle and just keeping it really strong and flexible. So I think you do the similar things to what I do. I, I try to allot 15 minutes a day to coming up with new ideas, even if I never use those ideas. But it's just the very act of generating ideas keeps my brain supple. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I find that just doing that allows you, if, if you're thrown into a difficult situation, you can immediately come up with ideas to get yourself out of that situation, for instance, because your idea muscle is, is a machine at that point. Yeah, I mean, you once told me, uh, which I love to see, you know, if you, have a, if you have a flat tire on the side of the road and you've been doing these uh, brainstorming every day, then you're going to have a lot more solutions on how to fix that tire. So uh, I love that. And one of my favorite anecdotes you ever told me was that you had, at one point in your career, uh, you were sort of at a low point, and you sent out a letter to 40 different people offering 10 free ideas to them. And, uh, and that is a lot of work, but it actually paid off for you because you got most people ignored what you said, but... To at least two people who then became very important in your career responded. And I love that, just coming up and offering free ideas to people. Yeah, I will tell you that that one act, and it was, it had to be 40 good ideas, so it was a while of developing the idea muscle, but that one act generated literally millions of dollars for me. It was very, it worked out very well. So so I definitely encourage people to, to do that. Now, now, with your books, so so, uh, which of your books have, have have all your books been on like the bestseller lists, or what's the uh, how have your books done? Yeah, thank God, all of them have been on the New York Times bestseller lists, and uh, yeah, I uh, I feel like I mean the bet the one that sold the most was probably the Year of Living Biblically, uh, but I am a huge fan of uh, of marketing my books. I I do enjoy it as almost a creative endeavor and when i started to do that i think that helped me a lot because a lot of writers i think see the publicity as as a horrible uh 
uh, you know, uh, a side effect that they, some, a chore that they have to do. But if you look at it, if you reframe it as something that's fun and creative, then uh, then I think it can really, uh, it'll it'll help in every part of your writing career. And I think that's in everything. I once interviewed these great, the artists Christo and Jean-Claude, you know, those conceptual artists who put up like 10,000 orange gates in New York Central Park. Oh, yeah. So I interviewed, because for them, it took them 25 years to get permission from New York City to put up those gates. Uh, And I said to them, you know, that must have driven you insane. And they said, well, yeah, they did a little, but we also see the bureaucracy, the red tape, as part of our of our art. It's like uh, that is part of the creative process. So I love that idea of reframing the boring parts of your job as something creative. And uh, and and so business does not. You talk about this a lot. Is you know, an entrepreneur is also a creator. Right. So it, basically, in this choose-yourself economy where you can't be satisfied with just living in a cubicle, you have to kind of be both a creator, entrepreneur, and that's what you've done. Like you say, your your writing career, but I would almost call it your writing business. Like you're a one-man business where you're writing, marketing, selling, cashing checks, writing checks, and you you've made a business around your books and around well, your ideas. Yeah. You're very kind. I mean, I do see that. I uh, I see myself as an entrepreneur almost, uh, as much as a writer. Definitely. Because well, yeah, you... and that brings us actually to your to your next book. So I'll, I'll describe it briefly, which is you're you're attempting to have the largest family reunion in history. So you want to describe a little how you how you came to that? Yeah, I get, I came to that because I got an email from a guy who said that he was my twelfth cousin. And I said, "How do you know?" And he said, "Yeah, it was huge family tree." And and it was uh, it was a wild email because it was sort of a little bit uh, invading invading my privacy. But at the same time, it made me feel like, "Oh my God, this is interesting. What is what is the meaning of family now? And and how big can we make our our family? How how far can we extend it?" And that's when I started. Uh, one of the methods was genetic testing. So I did these genetic tests to find out. Uh, who was related to me, and I found I had thousands of people who were my cousins who I didn't even know about. And uh, one of which, them, by the way, you and I are cousins. Exactly. One of them is you. And so I love that. And uh, so I'm going to try to hold the biggest family reunion ever. It's going to be in 2015. And if anyone is listening, please send me an email and I will try to track down how we're related. Because everyone's related. It's just how far you have to go back. So, yeah, send me an email, aj at ajjacobs.com, and just tell me your name your and your parents' names, and I will get working. And um, uh, you, when you say you'll get working, you're going to look at genealogy sites, but what about if they want to do genetic testing? Oh, I would love that. Anyone who wants to do genetic testing, you know, 23andMe, uh, does it for about a hundred bucks, but there are other sites. And by the way, Twenty Three and Me has been having trouble with the the medical side of their uh, business because the FDA clamped down on them. But the ancestry side is not affected, uh, so you can figure out who your cousins are through Twenty Three and Me. So where are you going to have the family reunion? How big do you think it will be? Well, the current record is about four thousand people. 
so I'm I'm hoping for at least five thousand. And I I love the venue. I found a venue called uh, the New York Hall of Science, which is on the grounds of the old New York's World Fair. Uh, have you ever heard of Maker's Fair? No. The, uh, oh, oh yes, I have. Yes. Yeah, it's like the biggest show and tell in the world, biggest science expo in the world, and it is uh, is in the same place. Uh, the Maker's Fair is extraordinarily successful. It's got. 75,000 people coming over a period of two days. Uh, and uh, so so if I can that, I'll be happy. Uh, are you going to get, let's think, thinking of this as a business, are you going to get, like, sponsors for this? Are you going to sell T-shirts? Are you going to What can you do to kind of increase the revenues of this idea? Like, well, yeah, if I, exactly. If you can sell T-shirts, I'm related to A.J. Jacobs. <laughs> I attended the largest family reunion in history. That's it. I definitely want corporate sponsors. I mean, this one is going to be a fundraiser for Alzheimer's, which runs in my family. So I'm not actually planning to make money on this reunion, but of course I want to make money on selling the book. And hopefully everyone who's in the family, and hopefully that's hundreds of thousands of people, will want to buy the book. Uh, I actually have an idea of, you know, in the acknowledgments, uh, I can print in tiny, like two-point font, the names of every one of my relatives, so that they uh, they'll all have their names in the book and all buy it. That's great. You know, you can also do that as I mentioned to you before. You can do that on a T-shirt. Oh yeah, I love your T-shirt. I love like, I'm, that. I'm wearing my T-shirt right now. For I've got my entire book, sixty-seven thousand words, all readable on my T-shirt. <laughs> So you should definitely sell the T-shirt. And you should get Guinness to sponsor the whole event because it's going to go in the Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah, exactly. I have, I plan to contact them. I haven't contacted them yet. When's the When's the book going to come out? Well, the reunion itself is not till June 6th of 2015. So the book will probably be out uh, until a few months after that. And um, now, in what way, like all of your other books are kind of about not necessarily self-help, but self-improvement, like how you're trying to self-improve yourself. How do you fit this into your kind of genre of books? Well, a couple of ways. One is just the idea of being, uh, when we realize, and this is a little quixotic perhaps, but when we realize how we're all related, maybe we will treat each other a little more kindly. Uh, and I, I see that in my own mind, you know, when I see, uh, uh, I, I mean, I always... I've always been a fan of yours, but when I found out we were cousins, it sort of brought it to a new level. So uh, so there's that. And then just the idea of, of family, how to be a good family member, how to be a good husband and father and uh, and son, and what goes into that. And, and family to me is so interesting right now because it's changing so rapidly. And the traditional family, the idea of, you know, uh, a man and a wife and two kids, that is being thrown out to all sorts of different gay marriage, open adoption, sperm donors, and uh, a lot of people are freaking out about that. You know, a lot of conservatives are are, are very upset about that. But uh, I think that there are there are pros there are pros to a more inclusive uh, way of viewing family. Where does family end? Like to, to some extent, the entire human race is this is this you know related to each other. If you go back far enough, where does where does family end? Well, that's a great question. I think it's a very arbitrary where it ends. It's up to you to decide because, as you say, we do uh, we are all part of this family, and we share. You know, 
even the, uh, a person from a completely different culture or continent is still shares more than 99% of uh, their DNA with you. And uh, so we, we, are, we are much more similar than we are different. And, and even this was a, a, I talked to a geneticist who told me we share 50% of our DNA with bananas. So maybe they should be invited to the uh, family reunion. That's hilarious. Well, <laughs> this guy who wrote to you initially, who said you were his 12th cousin, that's like going back, you know, practically a thousand years to see and then see all the descendants were. Who else are you related to? Yeah, he had, uh, he claims I'm related to uh, Karl Marx, uh, and so I checked well, I that. Could've, I could have told you that, so. <laughs> Just because I'm a, a liberal Jew. Uh, but I'm all in favor of capitalism. Uh, so uh, I think uh, my cousin Karl would be very upset with me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Karl, and uh, as you say, uh, you know, there is, uh, according to 23andMe, uh, Jimmy Buffett, so uh, who knows, you know, maybe that explains my kids' musical talent. I have no musical talent, but maybe it skipped a couple generations. Right. Who, who else? There must be others that you've run across. You know, if, by the way, if you're related to Jimmy Buffett, I think Warren Buffett's like a fifth cousin of his. Oh, yeah, I know. It's so true. I, I, so, I mean, the book is going to be a lot about getting advice from family members, no matter how distant. So uh, getting advice from you about uh, how to live your life, and Warren, my good cousin Warren, you know, get some advice on investing from him, because I love that. You know, I love the idea of, of trying to call Warren and saying, it's your cousin AJ, would you get on the phone with me? So we'll see. I haven't placed that call yet, but I can't wait. So it's interesting, because we talked about outsourcing before, and to some, to some extent, outsourcing is a distancing phenomenon. Like, I can outsource to Bangalore and not really care that much about who's doing the work, just that the work, it's almost like this black box that the work gets done. But you're adding this, um, almost this emotional connection so that it's a way of almost kind of this layer that says the work's going to get done better, that you can outsource and the work will get done better because I'm not just outsourcing to Bangalore, I'm outsourcing to my cousin in Bangalore. Exactly. I think you're right. I mean, having that one extra connection is going to make a huge difference. And uh, and I think, you know, going back to business, which uh, I know that is your expertise, you know, if you can approach someone uh, and say, hey, listen, you know, I, I have this company, I thought you'd be interested. By the way, we're cousins. The person, it's a little bit of a risk because they might be freaked out and think you're invading their privacy. How do you know that? But uh, on the other hand, they might be intrigued. Say, hey, listen, he's my cousin. Maybe I should uh, meet with him. You know, you should almost create like a, once once you're getting close to the actual event and you have the 5,000 people or more, you should almost create like a mini social network or a group within Facebook or a group within LinkedIn to see how many kind of business connections you can find. Like I wonder... Um, you know, not only are people uh, cousins, but there's also degrees of separation in terms of business and their business contacts, like on LinkedIn. I wonder if deals can be made. In, I love in that idea. Yeah, that's great. And and also, you know, so it could be a, a business conference. That's my vision for it. Is it sort of family reunion meets a TED conference? 
uh, because I'm going to have speakers and uh, and music. But uh, it will be interesting. Yeah, what what business can get done there, and also what uh, maybe you know it, it can be a, a place to meet members of the opposite sex if you're a, a single guy. Because I'm married to. Uh, a wonderful woman who I found out through genetic testing is my like seventh cousin. So I'm a cousin marrier. That's hilarious. That's and that's okay in the Bible. <laughs> that's definitely okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, mothers and, uh, and sons should not be married, but cousins are okay. Right. So, so AJ, this is great. We've we've covered the full scope of your career. We've gotten a lot of advice. We've gotten a lot of business advice, health advice, general life advice. I'm going to use some of this outsourcing techniques, uh, and I'm going to go to your family reunion, and hopefully a lot of our listeners will as well. I would love it. Absolutely. Please come. Yeah, as we said, everyone's related, so just send me an email at aj at ajjacobs.com, and I'll figure out how. Well, thanks very much, AJ. I'm really glad you could join us on the James Altucher Show, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Cousin James. Thank you, Cousin. Stansberry Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.